This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. We are going to be in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. We're going to read the whole thing. So if you'll stand with me, we'll get to reading and diving into that text. All right. So I'll start. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. 
Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We ask that you will take your truths and plant them deep inside of our hearts, that you will water them and that you will cause them to sprout and bear fruit. We give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, that's a good text. I love that text, and there's a lot of things going on inside that text. It, when, it start, when that text starts out, it starts out with about that time. In the beginning, it says about that time. So when he starts out, this is actually continuing on from last week when, when, when Pastor Aaron was preaching last week. And last week, we closed out with everything that was going on. There was this famine in Judea, and they send Paul and Barnabas out to Judea with, with goods. They sent them out on a mission to, to provide relief and to carry the gospel out to, to Judea. And that's what happens. And so he says this happened while this was going on. And that was like a family that lasted for, for almost eight years. So during this period of time, all this was going on. And during that time, there was the persecution of of, of, of Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, by, by the king. Now, in this text, Luke refers to him as King Herod, right? Now, King, this is not King Herod the Great. Like, we've heard Herod before. Herod was the, 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 the guy that beheaded John the Baptist, right? That's, that's, that's Herod the Great, the well-known guy that, that was just calling mad violence. He was really perverted and stuff, right? So that's Herod the Great, and he, he decapitated John the Baptist. He's also the one that had all the, the baby boys killed during Jesus' time, right? So this is Herod, but the reason why, why, why Luke refers to him as Herod, he's really this is Agrippa, Agrippa the first, but he is of the bloodline of Herod. He's the grandson of Herod, right? So, so Luke is making this connection to, to this family line right here. Acts is the only place that, that Agrippa is referred to as Herod. So Luke does this very intentionally. And he's pointing out how the household of Herod was in consistent opposition to the servants of God. This is important as we track through this thing, right? He's pointing out the consistent opposition to the household of God. Later on in Acts, you'll even see Agrippa II, he'll come up in his opposition there with Agrippa II. So we go in here and we start off, and 
From the get-go, here's one thing that you see happen. It says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, when he said he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword, what they mean is that he was decapitated. Normally, when something like this happens, it's to make, make a statement, a statement of power. He's decapitated just how John the Baptist was decapitated by, by Herod. And interestingly enough, he doesn't spend, Luke doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the death of James. He's just like, like you got to understand, this James is one of the founding members. This James is, is, is the inner circle, part of the inner circle. He's one of the, the apostles that, that gets beheaded. And, 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 and Luke is like, well, James got beheaded and then spend the rest of the story talking about everything that happened with Peter. And you start wondering, like, wow, you would think that they would spend a lot of time there. Like, even when, when Stephen died, Luke points out that they spent time lamenting Stephen's death. So I'm going to get back to that a little bit later, what I think Luke is doing here by, by not spending a, a whole grip of time talking about James' death, okay? So I'm going to get back to it a little bit later. Let's get back to the text. Verses 4 and 5, they read like this. And when, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison. Delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here Luke starts to give this, this context that was surrounding James and Peter when he was in jail that was surrounding Peter. He gives this, this, this context that, that, was, that Peter was all just drenched in. He, he was surrounded by the wicked intentions of the king. He was surrounded by four squadrons of soldiers. That's like 16 people. So it was like Agrippa was going overboard on making sure that, 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 that Peter didn't escape. If you remember before, we covered it and Peter was in jail before and the Lord delivered him out of jail before. So, so obviously Agrippa knows this and Agrippa's like, not on my watch. I'm going to have four squadrons all around him. So he, he, he describes, Luke describes this context of, of all the stuff that was surrounding him, the, the wicked intentions of the king, this guy that had all this, this power and authority, all these soldiers that was around him. He, he's chained next to two people. But he also described there was something else that, that Peter was surrounded by right there. It says he was surrounded by the prayers of the community of believers. This is important to understand here. This is a contrast that he makes. All these people that are surrounding him, the power of the, of the king, all these, these soldiers, but also the prayers of the saints. Now let's look at verses 6 through 10 as we walk through this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up, quickly. And the chains fell off of him. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left. They they went down one street, and immediately the angel left. Now, as as we go through this, like his how... I want you to think as we we wrestle through this. It's important to remember, like last week Pastor Aaron was preaching, and and one of the things that Pastor Aaron said last week, he pointed out how how there are sections of the story that Luke covers, and it covers these long periods of time. So what he does to cover these long periods of time is he's, he's giving highlights, right? Now, understanding, like the book of Acts, we read through the book, like what, we're, we're walking through the book of Acts for like a year, right? The book of Acts covers approximately 32 years, right? This is important for you to understand when you read the book of Acts. It's not like, oh man, this all happened like in a couple of weeks or, or, or not even a year, but around 32 years is covered during the book of Acts. And, and there's no way possible for, for, for Luke to write down every single detail of every single thing that happened during that time. So, so he uses these highlights. Another thing to keep in mind why he's using these highlights is when the book of Acts is written. Book of Acts isn't written as it happened. The book of Acts is written about 40 years after all these things happened. So Luke is looking at it in hindsight. So all the highlights that he uses, all the phrases that he uses, even the names, like the intentionality to to use Herod to talk about Agrippa, even though his name is Agrippa, but to connect it to the bloodline, all these things are are important. Even the stories that are sandwiched next to each other, all these things are, are intentional in helping us see the big picture, the grand narrative, because Luke is looking at this thing in hindsight with all the other things that he knows connect. So as he's writing these things down, all these things become tools to how Luke describes the big picture and these events in relation to the big picture. He starts off talking about in the beginning. In the beginning, he says how how these things happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, he's intentional. He's intentional in putting that out there. And how he wrote everything, he said these things happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here Luke highlights the the irony of of Peter in change during the very festival that celebrates the deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. He makes this 
this connection so we understand what's going on here. And there's a lot of things that are similar. So, like, I want to look at some of the similarities. Look, check this out. Like, Egypt, in Egypt, the people of God was oppressed by a wicked ruler bent on displaying his power. In Jerusalem, the people of God, the church, are oppressed by a wicked ruler bent on displaying his power. And, and, and he, he does this by, by beheading James and imprisoning Peter with the intent to kill him. But notice something. In neither case did God change the heart of the wicked ruler. Instead, in both cases, deliverance came by the people of God following the leading of God out of bondage. In both cases. Now, now God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. So, so he's very intentional with his what's and how's. Important for you to understand that. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can change the heart of the king. He can cause the king to be like, oh, man, dad, I was doing all these wrong things. I'm so sorry. But that's not what he chooses to do. In both cases, he can completely overthrow and remove the power from the wicked ruler, but he chooses not to. Instead, he displays his power as greater than the wicked ruler's power in comparison. Now, now there's something to learn about growing and trusting God by him not removing opposing powers, but instead saying, trust me in the midst of it. There's something to learn about that. A lot of us, it's easy to trust God when there's no opposition. It's easy to trust God when there's nothing coming against you. It's easy to trust God when, when, when everything looks bright and cheery. It's real easy. God is good. Even think about it from a parental point of view. Even as parents, we, 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 we desire to protect our, our, our kids from, from, from everything and everything that in any way, shape, or form that could, could harm them. We do everything in our, our power to make sure that we keep them out of harm's way or anything that can affect them negatively. And then sometimes, sometimes we teach our kids how to follow the leading that we, we give to them in the face of adversity, though. Despite things that may come their way, like, I won't be able to keep you from every single thing. So you're going to need to know how to follow my, the leading that I laid out in front of you when I'm not around. Even though God is always around, there's something important to learning what it looks like to follow him and trust him in the face of opposition Without him having to always to remove that opposition, the, the opposition shows how much greater God is powerful. So God communicates. He doesn't, he doesn't need the opposing power to be absent for him to be more powerful. I want to look at this text, and I want to I put some particular lenses on as we look through this text. You look at Israel's bondage in Egypt. We look at Peter's bondage in Jerusalem representing the church. We look at the oppression of the people of, of God in both Egypt and Jerusalem, the, the opposition that faced the church, the opposition that Jesus faced that continued to oppose the church. You look at all these things, 
And all these things represent the powers that oppose the mission of God and the people of God. This is the connection that Luke is making when he refers to Agrippa as Herod and points out the celebration of the deliverance from Egypt in the midst of it. This bondage is like, this bondage has been going on for a while. So that we would see this, this consistent narrative of opposition against the people of God. Like, hey, like, hey, there's this narrative of opposition that's been going on for a while. It's not brand new. It didn't just start right here. It's been going on for a while. Let me connect the dots here so you can see this isn't a brand new thing. And when we think about these these wicked rulers, these wicked rulers represent the very enemy of our souls. It's important to understand this. Agrippa doesn't just represent Agrippa or Herod doesn't just represent Herod or Pharaoh doesn't just represent Pharaoh, but he represents something deeper. An enemy that is ruling and oppressing people back then and even now displaying his power. The thing is that oppression looks different, though. That's the thing. The oppression looks different now. The, the, the bondage looks different. That, that display of power looks different. In many ways, it looks the same, but in many ways, it looks, it looks different. If you're looking for it to look just like that, you may miss it happening right now inside of your own life. You start looking at these things through through spiritual lenses. You start seeing so many of us in oppressed and in bondage to, to sin inside of our own hearts, inside of our own mind that we feel we find ourselves like in bondage to it. Oppressed by the power that sin has. You look at the power that sin has inside of our lives and, and the things that we struggle with. And sometimes it can feel oppressive. Like, man, you look at the, the power of the temptation, the, the power of the desire that drives you to it, the attraction of it. Even the celebration of that sin in the world that we, that we live in it all becomes oppressive to us. The bondage becomes so real if you, you'll miss it, if you're just looking at it naturally. Also spiritually, these things are pouring into spiritual rulers. Listen, the same God that delivers Israel out of bondage from Egypt is the same God that delivers Peter out of bondage in Jerusalem. And that's the same God that delivers us from the bondage of sin in our own hearts and lives. It's important to get this. It's that same God delivering his people out of bondage over and over and over again. Some of us are, are overwhelmed by the clear and present power of sin in our hearts. Like we want to walk in freedom, but we're waiting for God to render the powerful draw of sin powerless. We're waiting for God to remove the temptation or remove the desire or remove the appeal in and of itself. We're praying, God, do this, do this, do this, and then he doesn't. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes he allows it to stay right there. And we're like Peter in that cell, bound with one guard on the left and one guard on the right. The desire for sin on the left and the opportunity for it on the right. But, but the desire and the opportunity are sent by the wicked ruler with us in the middle. In bondage. Verse 7 says that the angel struck Peter on his side to wake him up. And even this wording here, when it said struck him, it wasn't like a gentle nudge, right? Like, hey, hey there. He ain't there. <laughs> but he struggled. <laughs> Wake up. Paul. But he strikes him and wake him up. Now, now, sometimes the Lord doesn't just gently nudge you to wake up, wake you up. Sometimes he strikes you. Sometimes he does something to, to grab your attention. Like, look, I'm standing right in front of you, the angel that came to deliver you from this bondage. He strikes him, then he, he tells him to, to get up. And, and it wasn't until he started to get up that the chains fall off. And it was, and it was he was given instructions and followed those instructions and was led out of bondage into deliverance. Like sometimes it's, it's being obedient to the voice of God that God uses to break the chains of bondage inside your life. Sometimes it's not so much so that you are super powerful and you are strong and you can do this and you can do that. And God is like, no, just say yes to me, right? Let me, let me take it. Let me lead you out of this. You're not going to overpower those guards. You're not going to overpower the draw. You're not going to overpower the attraction. But if you just say yes to me right here, I'll let you know the next step. And then I'll let you know the next step. So sometimes being obedient is what breaks the chains of a bondage and continual obedience is what leads you into deliverance. Verse 11, verse 11 through, through 17, look at this. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many was gathered together and praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl by the name Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. That must have been jacked up. People were like, seriously? 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. When he said James, he's not talking about the James that got beheaded. All right? It's a different James, the Jesus fan. But 
But look at these things. One, one, like inside that text, there's three things that stand out here, right, about, about us, the church. Now, we talk about the opposition, right? But one, Peter is just now realizing that it's, it ain't all a dream, right? He's just now realizing that. He's like outside on the streets. Like, listen, when I'm in my dreams, right, I do all type of crazy stuff because I know it's a dream. This is just a dream. I'm about to jack this up and jack that up, right? Peter is oblivious to the fact that God is the one that's carrying him out. And, and, and sometimes we are just like that. We are oblivious to the fact that God is the one that's opening up this door right here for you as a way out of that bondage. You don't even see him as that. You don't realize that's what's going on here. So that's one thing. That Peter is just now realizing that it's, just a, that it's, that it's not all a dream. Another thing is this, this servant girl, girl, Rhoda, who leaves Peter standing at the gate. Now, Peter knows that, man, once they realize that I'm gone, they're going to be out here searching for me. So imagine Peter's like, seriously, Rhoda, open the door. So you don't get it. And she goes, to, and she goes to, to the people inside that are praying for deliverance, which brings me to number three. The people praying for Peter's deliverance don't believe their prayers have been answered so quickly and efficiently. Instead, they're like, nah, girl, God don't answer prayer that quick. Come on. That's, that got to be his angel. I don't even know what's up with that, but. Dude, when we pray, when we pray, we got to be expecting God to move. That's what faith is. Like, I'm praying and I'm believing and I'm expecting, so I'm doing. You got to be like, like, I'm praying and I'm listening for how God is. I don't know how he's going to move. I don't know how he's going to answer, but I'm praying and I'm looking for it. So when I hear the slightest thing, I'm like, is that him? Okay, that's not him yet. I know he's going to do something. I'm still praying. I'm still trusting. So long as it lines up with this world is what he's doing, I know he won't withhold anything good for me. I trust that he's going to do what is good, and I'm expecting it. I'm preparing for it. So when even a, a glimmer of it comes, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for you. That's how our hearts should be. But sometimes the reality of the works of the enemy makes us pray with, like, I hope. He does it, but I don't know because this sort of looks grim. But nonetheless, despite all these things, God shows himself as sufficient. Despite these things, God shows himself as, as sufficient. God shows that he's in control. When we drop the ball, he's in control. Peter, the woman in the church, or slow to respond, but God was steadfast. Peter was in his sleep. The woman was like, what? The church is like, nah. And God was like, steadfast. Listen, God, God is sufficient and powerful enough to accomplish his purposes despite our inefficiency. It's important for us to understand that. He is good enough and powerful enough to accomplish his purposes despite our shortcomings. Even in our own lives, 
even in the sin that we wrestle with inside our own life, despite our powerlessness to control and do this and do that, God is sufficient enough to even deliver us there. It's important that we understand that if we look at God, like he's not viewed on our terms. What he does isn't dependent on what we do. Neither is his power. Some of us become overwhelmed at at, at the power of bondage that sin has over us, and we become discouraged. Some of us just decide to just give in to it. There's no way I can conquer it. But God doesn't need you to to be powerful enough to conquer the sin in your life for him to deliver you from the bondage of that sin. What he calls you to is to submit to his power. And to follow his lead, despite the opposing powers that surround you. I want you to get this. Despite the lure, despite the opposing powers around you, he wants you to submit to him. Let me walk this through real quick. Verse 18. Now when they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Pelastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people shouted, the voice of a God, not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 6 and 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In this, this part of Acts, in this story, Herod represents, he stands as a symbol of those rulers, a symbol of those authorities and powers that are actually spiritual forces of evil opposing God and the mission of his people. That's what Herod represents. And what happens to Herod at the end is interesting because God chooses to kill Herod now. Now, he could have done it at any time. At any time. He doesn't do it to deliver Peter. He doesn't do it to save James. He does it for his name's sake. For his name's sake, he chooses to do this. That he will be glorified. And it's not like, like, this isn't the first time that someone took the glory that goes to God, and it won't be the last time. So God chooses to display his ultimate authority and power in this way at this time. It's just a show of how sovereign he is. How, even how more powerful he is that he picks and chooses when he decides to do it. And the moment that you think he should do it, he doesn't. Then all of a sudden he does it out the blue. 
Luke makes this comparison. Herod dies, but the word of God increases and multiplied. The enemy of God and his people will fail. That's what he's pointing at. The enemy of God and his people will fail, but God will prevail. It's important to understand that. It says the word of God increased and multiplied. So it's not just, just barely making it by, but prevailing abundantly. This is the God that we serve. The enemy will, will, will fail. And the mission of God will prevail for, for, for the building of his kingdom. His mission will prevail. The enemy will fail. But his mission, God's mission, will prevail abundantly. The enemy will, will fail. And the mission of God will prevail abundantly in our personal lives. The mission of God will prevail. He's on mission in your life. And his mission will prevail abundantly. Despite opposition. Comparing Herod's death to the prevailing of the mission of God highlights a grander narrative. Luke points out this, this underlying narrative of the, the work of enemy against the, the mission of God, against the people of God. And then he, he turns around and says, but here's this a greater, a greater narrative of a God that's, that's constantly in control, a God that's constantly showing that he's way more powerful. And he chooses to do it how he wants to do it, when he wants to do it. Let me get ready to wrap this up here. The band can come up now. Early on, I'm looking at this text, and, and we was looking at how Luke doesn't give much attention to the death of James. He just mentions it. James was beheaded. And then he goes on, and he, he spends a lot of time breaking down the details of everything else that happened to Peter, the guards, everything that was going on with Herod. It's not, it's not that he's more focused on Peter, the guards, and the servant girl, or, or even the apostles. He is framing this thing in a way that we should be viewing it. See, He's more focused on the work of God than the enemy. He's more focused on what God is doing. Like, we have to always view the work of the enemy in context to the work of God. When you take the work of the enemy and you isolate it and you look at it by itself, he starts to look powerful. He starts to look strong. He starts to look overwhelming, but when you frame it in context to the work of God, how God is continuously doing these things, how he's continuously showing how powerful he is, then the work of the enemy becomes very minuscule. Anytime when you look at the work of the enemy inside of your lives, inside of the world, then you look at it in comparison because, listen, it's a lie that, that, that the enemy is doing more things than what God is doing. That's a lie. That the enemy is more powerful and is prevailing more. God has been prevailing way more, much bigger. And you always look at what the enemy does in context of what God has already done. Wow. What he's doing 
and what he will do. You always look at it inside that context. So when Luke just makes a mere mention of, of, of James being killed, and then spends the rest of the time talking about how God delivers and how Herod is killed at the end, Luke is making a point. Now, the power of our enemy versus the power of our God oftentimes seems greater. It seems to be in more abundance. You look at all the the numbers of soldiers, it seems to be more abundant. He seems to be in control. But Luke compares how how these powers function in war against one another. Here's something I want you to understand. When Luke starts to paint this picture in the beginning, this thing that seems to be overwhelming because Peter is, is, is locked up and all these people is around them. You got four squads of guards. He changed to, to two guards, each on, on one on, on, on the side. He doesn't just leave it at that. He points to the power of the saints praying. The prayers of the community of believers. That's what he points towards. Sometimes we look at, at prayer as not that powerful, not that strong. We look at it and you see all the forces working against it, working against you, working against God. All those things coming against it, but the backdrop is that it's mingled with prayer. Listen, I want to close like this. Now, the community of believers came together in praying. As we get ready to close this particular section of Acts out, I want us to close in prayer and communion. There are two ways I want us to do this. I want us to pray in groups and personally, right? So for those of us that like just grab a few people around you and decide to pray in groups, I want you to pray for three things. Like these, the, the community believers in the beginning, they, they came together to pray for the church and the leaders of the church and what was going on and the opposition. So here's three things. I want some groups to, to dedicate to, to pray for the leaders and those that serve here at Redemption Alhambra. I want some groups to dedicate to pray for the mission of the global church at large. And I want some people to dedicate to pray for the mission of God here in Alhambra Village. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. 